College in this country is expensive, so say we all. And so it's no surprise that one of the, if not the, primary outcomes families want when their child graduates is that they get a job, which usually means a high-paying job. I've certainly been hearing for a long time that the quality of the college, by which I mean the level of fame or prestige of the college, is not just one way to get that job and that happy American future, but one of the only ways, and that if you don't go to a famous college, you are going to become a social outcast and probably end up in prison. Furthermore, you'd better study STEM, or you may as well just take your tuition dollars, chuck them into the street, because none of this hippie humanity stuff is going to take you anywhere. Well, I'm pleased to welcome back Doug Weber, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Economics Department at Temple University as my first repeat guest to learn more about what his own research has to say about this. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I am Davin Sweeney, a college counselor at CollegeWise, who talks to people like Temple Economics Professor Doug Weber, who actually agreed to talk to me not just for a second time, but a third time. More on that later. In order to help me help you, the cherished listener, learn more about what's really going down out there in the college and college admissions landscape. Subscribe and rate the show. Send me an email, crushpod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at crushpod and engage. Engage with me and the digital community about all this stuff. Share these episodes around to folks who you think might dig it and uh, or they have an hour or so of nothing in particular going into their ears. And so this this can go there. In fact, hey, some of you people out there might know uh, some people that want a little extra help with the college admissions process. Well, I'm one of those people that could help. Fire me a note. I'd be happy to talk to you. Okay. So this is a bit of a longer one. Uh, I won't take too much time here in the intro except just to say that Professor Weber and I cover a lot of ground. And one of my favorite episodes, if I can have favorites, I mean, sure. I can, right? I mean, they aren't children, for Christ's sakes. Anyways, it's my first talk with Doug Weber is one of my favorites, episode 18, where we talk about New York State's Excelsior Scholarship, which is their uh, policy proposal for free tuition for a certain economic uh, band of college attendees. So please make sure you head back into the crates and dig that one out for a listen as well for a little context. Okay, so it is an inherent ongoing interest of mine and also a responsibility that occupies a lot of my time as a counselor to push back against the glamour and sparkly shine of prestige and to question the real value of that in the lives of students and families who are obsessed, golem-like, by its attraction. Well, Professor Weber spends his time doing some of the heavy economics lifting to get to the heart of what really matters. And guess what? It ain't prestige. What you study matters much, much more than where, certainly when it comes to income. So we talk about a lot of stuff, namely what is tenure and why we have as Weber having achieved tenure between our uh, conversations, updates on New York's Excelsior Scholarship, which he and I touched on back in episode 18, as I mentioned, please make sure you go back and scope that out. We also talk about the economics of the endowment tax passed by the Republican Congress as a component of their tax bill. And all of this before we start to dig into the economic impacts of selecting a major in college and whether robots will take your job, and if so, whether it's a good idea to get a major in something that will likely be the work of a robot in the future. Spoiler, probably not. So here you have my talk with uh, Doug Weber in his big-time corner office at Temple University in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, PA. 
thanks again uh-huh. for um, having me here into your your office. This is where this is where the thinking goes down. Yeah, you've got a corner office, I should say. Uh, it's but o- it's only because of the director of graduate studies. This I, b- b- before that, um, I was in a tiny office, a few few doors that way. But I must say, like as far as corner offices go, you know, you think like big like vistas right you know i mean there's the corner and and there's like two very small windows i know they are really not taking advantage (laughs) of the fact no way i mean they're and we're on the eighth floor there's no security concern or anything like they could really have made this a lot nicer but well um i figured you know yeah with tenure which you've achieved since last time we spoke um you know, you would probably be able to demand some upgrades to your office, no? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just come in here with a sledgehammer and make yeah, a window? I don't think so, All unfortunately. Right. No, it is a, it's a public school. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's the, um, so you're very graciously talking to me again. Uh, some of my questions may sound familiar to you because we did this once before. Uh-huh. And this is, this is a first for me in a couple of ways. Number one, it's the first time I'm having a repeat guest Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh-huh. Um, it is also the first time that uh, I fucked up and uh, totally erased an interview <laughs> that you and I already did one time oh, that's all a fun. while ago. That's all right. And then I did um, this really fun thing where I just kind of like buried my head in shame for like months on end. <laughs> Um, but then realized that I was going to have an opportunity to come to Philly and if you would still if you would still speak with me. Uh on a casual level, let alone, you know, in this kind of capacity, then uh, I, I would be I would be honored. And sure enough, being the gracious person that you are, agreed to do this again. I appreciate ha- happy it. Happy to do it. So you said this is a weird time of year. What's going on? This is, uh, let's see, where are we? December uh, 4th? Yes. Uh, it's, you know, uh, last week of classes, uh, just starting to, just starting the graduate school admission season. So mm-hmm. applications are starting to trickle in. Getting things, you know, planned for next semester um, because we also are do our department is uh, hiring this year, so that is taking up a ton of time. We got for one um, assistant professor position, um, we got 562 applications. Um, you know, so these are people with PhDs, and an application you know, includes the, a dissertation. So it's not, it's not like it's just a little bit, it's not like it's just a resume that you're, you're looking at. You are looking, you know, this is 562 dissertations that we get on top of three letters of recommendation for each candidate and CVs and teaching statements and research statements. And so it's, it's a lot to go through. It's a, it's a tricky um, field, academia, to get hired. Yes. And, and, you know, one thing that I did not realize when I was on the job market is how so as a um, as a job market candidate, it's definitely more stressful to be someone who is needing a job. But I think it's actually harder and more uh, more tiring work to be on a hiring committee uh, because going through five hundred and sixty two applications, it's 
weeks and weeks and weeks of of I mean absolutely exhausting work. Well, they say uh, that I think re- recent research says that it takes uh, on average between six and like twenty to twenty five minutes to read an undergraduate application for college, and these take a lot longer than that. And on average, I think counselors are reading somewhere around a thousand of those applications so yeah geez man yeah it's uh it it, the the thing is we're talking about giving someone basically a six-year contract um Mm -hmm. so you know because this is a tenure track position so um, it's really important that you know you're not talking about hiring an intern for the next six months you're talking about giving someone the next six years and ideally um, some you know you you don't want someone who's going to leave after six years or who's going to be denied tenure you want to make sure that you're picking someone who is uh, who's going to be able to get tenure and who's going to be going to flourish here and is also going to be a good teacher and is going to be a good citizen and all these things um, and you know on top of that so on top of measuring like kind of all of those quality dimensions, which are hard enough, you have to figure out who actually wants to come here and who's just applying because it's another job to apply to. Yeah. Um, but maybe they would. Do have- they have to demonstrate interest? Exactly, and that's that's <laughs> that's hard to do. That, for instance, now while Temple's a good school, you know, we're we're not Harvard or Princeton or Yale. In other words, the the very very best candidates on the market. We're not going to hire unless they tell us, you know, uh, credibly. No, no, look, I have a spouse. You know, my my husband works in Philadelphia. I really need to get to Philly. In mm-hmm, that case, mm-hmm. of course, we'll interview them. Mm-hmm. But um, otherwise, like if if it looks like, oh, look, this this is the top candidate coming out of MIT, and they're being sold to all the other, you know, top five or top ten departments. There's no reason for us to interview them. It would be a waste of a spot because we only have – we basically have 30 first-round interviews to give out. Um, so we'll interview – we'll have 30 30-minute meetings uh, with with people in the first week in January. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to get from 562 down to 30. Um, but we don't want to waste any of those spots. And in the meantime – Teach classes. Teach classes, do research, research, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, serve on committees. I'm on 11 dissertation committees right now. Why Um, are you on so many? Because you can't say no because you're a nice guy and you say yes. That is people, a, eleven people came and asked and said, "Will you be on my dissertation committee?" And you that, said yes to every single one. That is basically it. There, there are some <laughs> needs outside of that, but yes, basically. Yeah. Well, you speaking of tenure, I mean, this is something that yeah, I mean, you got kicked upstairs. Recently, congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, and I say recently just because this is like since since the last uh, uh, interview that we that we did together. But um, are you still at that point? I mean, even after, I mean, don't you just get to kind of kick up your feet and be like, "You guys do the dissertation committee. I'm, I don't need to anymore." No, come so, at me. I got so, tenure. So, um, will I say that there are some professors who do that? <laughs> yeah, there are. And you know what, I effing hate them mm. um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are there are some people who not team players no um and um i want them to retire and i <laughs> want them it's it frankly you know it can be a source of of a lot of anger and frustration in well, academia. and then speaking right i mean speaking you know economically 
relative to the labor force and economics. I think yep. you've got a lot of baby boomers, yep. right, who are h- hanging on yep. to their, you know, uh, endowed share positions. So they're barely showing up, but they're there, and yep. they haven't done anything offensive enough to get fired. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and, and you know, I'm not going to say that that's the norm or anything, but the fact that it does happen when it happens. It's extremely frustrating, yeah. and um, you know, you um, it, it it puts more work on the people who are who are the team players, and it 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 overburdens them, um, and so it's it is quite frustrating. You told me a, a story last time we talked about um, you know when I, I had asked you why do we have tenure mm-hmm. and what's the point, and you, you told me a story about um, some research that you were engaged in and the value of having tenure being that, you know, you can engage in research over a long period of time and it may or may not pan out, right? Yep. Um, no, that's absolutely right. And this is, so for, you know, some of the the most socially impactful research can take a long time um, and it's not certain that it's ever going to be publishable. Um, that, you know, um, if you, let's say you have to publish you know, X number of papers per year. Um, well, then you, by definition, are not going to want to engage in anything very risky because you have to do things that are going to get published, you know, right now. Um, and you're not going to want to spend necessarily time on, on a project that could be, say, five years that you don't know if it's going to work out or not. If you ask me, I do think that there should be that our current tenure system is not optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there are there are holes in it, and that um, there need to be more protections, um, kind of protecting against the worst case scenario of people of uh, you know not doing anything later mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. Um, just because it's it's not the norm, but it is more common than you'd like. Yeah. Um, and and so maybe having tenure be something like I'm just throwing this out there, like say rather than a lifetime appointment, you're granted tenure. It's a 25 year contract. So then it's pretty good. You you have you have the freedom to uh, to you know take some chances. You know, for instance, I'm working on now. Um, I am working on a a big. Um, um, Grant project that's a an, an ex, a randomized control trial an experiment um, with a, a specific type of financial aid, and it's it's a five year project and it's you know it's if it works out it could be something that greatly informs you know colleges on how to how to help students um, who are in need and to finish their degrees mm-hmm. or it might not work out at all something might one we might not get any just no, no significant results maybe the experiment doesn't have an effect or maybe something is going to go wrong with the experiment god i hope not but maybe something is going to happen that is you know that is bad that ruins the experimental ideal right in which case it's not publishable at all if if I have a and this this takes a lot of time yeah um, and the planning like we're talking about a mil, multi million dollar uh, you know project mm-hmm. so um, if I um, had a bunch of you know if, if I had to you know publish you know X number of papers every single year I wouldn't spend any time on this sort of thing because it would be it, it would just be so risky and not not I wouldn't be incentivized to do it. But this is the type of thing that 
is more likely to give us solid, credible answers on, um, you know, how to improve the financial aid system. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that we want people to do. Um, and tenure, so, you know, this is the good side of tenure, right. that, that it, it, is, it, it allows for this type of risk taking. Right. The other, you know, upside of tenure is um, that you know, kind of a, a more general academic freedom that you won't have people who are unwilling to say unpopular things because they're worried about political repercussions. Mm -hmm. That um, if you think if your research says something is true, you're not going to be afraid to to say that. Thankfully, that's not been something that that area of tenure is not something that I have had to deal with. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's also a, you know, a valid protection of tenure. Sure. But, you know, like I said before, there are definite downsides. Right. Um, well, so since since uh, we last talked, and, and to remind folks, the last um, topic of conversation was the Excelsior Scholarship Program in New York State. You're a labor economist. It is early yet since that conversation to sort of get a sense of, you know, what's going on with that policy. But is there anything that um, you've been keeping your eye on that's noteworthy as far as, as, as how that's been going? Yeah. So I think it's it's still is definitely too early to draw any firm conclusions one way or another, positive, negative, um, especially a lot, you know, some of the, the big negative things that I that I was concerned about, we're not going to know until people actually graduate and start you know, having to face a decision of, well, do I move out of state or do I um, and potentially lose, um, you know, lose the benefits of this scholarship? Right, because that was the big thing that you had a, a, a took issue with was the fact that it may that this the, that the conditions of this scholarship would restrict people's abilities to kind of live their best life and maximize yep. their the return on their yep. investment for that that degree. Um, and so we're way too soon, years, years too soon to be able to say anything about that. You did do some research, it looks like, with Robert Kelchin. Yep. Right? To um, And um, I'm looking at it now, examining the interstate mobility of recent college graduates, really to get at this issue and understand the phenomenon of interstate mobility. What did you learn in, in, in that paper? So one thing is that there has been a, a decline in um, in overall college mobility. Yeah, so, if I, so if I look at it here, I mean, it's really fairly steady until about 2007 Great yep. Recession, yep. and then it really starts to flag. Which uh, honest, uh, honestly and unfortunately is... Uh, kind of a, a relationship that you see in a lot of uh, you know time series that things are going all right, then we hit the Great Recession and everything goes to shit. Right, right, um, right. That 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 happens in a that 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 statement is true of a lot of uh, a lot of relationships. Yeah. One of the benefits of college is the is that it it makes you more competitive in a national labor market um, and you know a greater ability to you know to move around mm -hmm. and so this. The fact that people are moving a little less than before, maybe it's something that's transitory that, you know, it was kind of the Great Recession and the after effects of it because uh, it did last a long time. We're still kind of just, uh, you know, recovering from yeah. it. 
Um, and your or, data goes up to 2015, and we're still not uh, we're we're still not back up to the rate of interstate mobility that we saw in 2007. Exactly. And so, is this something that we can expect to go back up, or is this a new permanent? Is this the new norm? You know, we'll, stay close to home. Yeah, exactly. We're not sure. I mean, is that basically what we can infer from just even looking at this? You know, this graph here is that you know, moving away from home, moving out of state after college is uh, more of just more of a risky proposition. Yeah, I think so. And so people just kind of don't want to take that risk. I, they stick with closer to what they know and what they're aware of. I, I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. And that's, you know, um, in in some, in one sense, completely understandable. Mm -hmm. um, in another sense, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, uh, on average, taking, um, taking those types of risk – it's not going to pay off for everybody, but on average, it does pay off over over a population. And so, um, you know, fewer people doing that, you know, is it, it, I'm not at all saying that this is an alarm bell, but it's it's something that we want to keep a keep an eye on. And and it seems that, and I think I, I recall looking at this too that um, one of the things that you noticed about New York State is that you know the 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 the, the amount of people that were leaving over the the lifetime of this of this study which is about 10 years really was pretty negligible yeah such that a policy to keep people in state maybe a little bit more about uh, the political talking point uh, than the economic reality I think that's exactly right and and one thing that that I think is really important that people need to grasp because I I, I get the the argument here the argument that uh, you know, oh, well, this state is investing in these people, so we want to keep them in state. I get it. Mm -hmm. um, but there are costs as well. That um, one is just there is a cost of regulating. So um, when um, New York State, because they have this requirement that if you if you leave the state after graduating, then this the the scholarships turn into loans. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that New York State has to track everything. It costs money to track people. It costs money and time of you know of of employees to administer this system. So that's an administrative cost. So let's let's uh, I like illustrating things in extreme points. Let's say that there is one person who will you know is educated in New York State but but leaves. Mm -hmm. Well, then you have designed that this this policy is clearly a net negative because you're paying all this money to design the system to track people and pay money to track people, and you're only going to wind up getting one, you know, helping or you know, changing one student's scholarship to a loan. Then you would have much rather not implemented this policy in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like it would be better to just eat the loss of that one student than pay all this in administrative costs. Mm -hmm. um, there's other costs as well. You know, you're potentially keeping people in the state. Someone maybe makes a rational decision. It's better for me to stay in New York State and collect uh, collect unemployment insurance mm -hmm. than it is for me to leave the state and suddenly get a thirty thousand um, dollar you know loan bill and be gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. So there are these costs as well. Right. And my point is, it's impossible to tell beforehand. You know, before you can evaluate everything. But I think the costs of this policy are greater than the benefits. But And you mentioned that um, Rhode Island might be considering something similar. Yeah. Because, I mean, 
I mean, if there's a if there's a, a case study for a bustling state economy, yeah, um, right. I mean, so I mean, and for Rhode Island, it's you know potentially a much worse decision than than uh, New York because at least New York is very you know economically diverse in that you know that you have. New York City, which is, you know, frankly, most people can consider it a, a completely different state from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to, I Agreed. did my graduate school in uh, um, in Ithaca, mm-hmm. so you know, I'm well versed in uh, in upstate New York. Yes, sir. And you know, at least there are many, many different industries and economic, you know, diversity in New York State. That's mm-hmm. le- that's a lot less true in Rhode Island. Yeah. That you know, if but my point is. In New York, if you can't find employment in your particular city, there's at least a reasonable chance you might be able to stay within the boundaries of New York State and find something else some in some other city. Right. That's much less true in Rhode Island. Well, there's a lot more to, to obviously keep track of this as we as you know we watch watch it play out over time. But it, um, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, from an economics of, of higher ed standpoint is this um, tax on endowments that happened as a result of the the tax reform bill that was passed uh, last spring. Yep. So basically that tax, that, that basically says that universities need to give the government a proportion of how whatever amount of money you've got in the bank in the form of an endowment, right? So it's a little different than that. It's... it's um, uh, a tax on the um, on the endowment returns. So, okay. um, so it's this, not the principal that's sitting in there. That's right. It's a, a tax on 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 the returns that you okay. get from it. Um, but like, still, like it's it's for some schools, it's going to be very significant. I think I heard, so I think I heard from for Harvard, it would be about forty three million dollars that, a that's, year. That sounds about right. So um, you know, I am not opposed. To uh, in principle to taxing uh, university endowments that um, I'll give you the 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 pros first um, even more so you know you hear a lot about economic inequality in you know the general you know the the general U S population mm-hmm. the there is much greater inequality among universities something like and I I. Forget the statistics now. I think it's more than fifty percent of the entire, um, you know, endowment value in the in the U.S. Um, is concentrated among the top maybe fifteen schools or something. Like it, it is extremely concentrated wealth, and that's not that's not a good thing in general. So that is a justification that you know, if if we um, if what this money is intended for is, you know, to you know to help society, and that's mm-hmm. you know it's a these are nonprofits. It's intended to help society, and it's being hoarded by a small number of schools that educate a very small percentage of students. There is definitely a justification for um, that it could be better spent somewhere else. Okay, so that's let me get that out of the way. Now, why I'm very much against. This specific proposal, so I'm, I I could be very in favor of a a some version of an endowment tax, but not this one. For one thing, the money leaves higher education. I would be much more in favor of something that, r- rather than taking it out of higher ed, 
Give it to underfunded community colleges that are educating a really high percentage, not just of students, but particularly you know, lower income and disadvantaged students. Um, and many community colleges are woefully underfunded. I believe Karl Marx would agree with you here. <laughs> um, yeah, redistribution of wealth. Jeez. Um, but, you wouldn't have said this pre-tenure. Yeah. Um, I think you made the exact same joke last time. I know. That's why I wanted to say it again. Yeah. Um, the uh, But this is this is the idea. And that if there's this really great uh, podcast episode that I like by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called My Little Hundred Million. It's part of that limited run podcast series uh-huh. that yeah, he yeah. did where he talks about giving people that make donations to, yeah. um, you know, Phil Knight, one of my, my homies from my hometown and state of Portland, Oregon, yep. giving a hundred million dollars to Stanford to fund, you know, a hundred students a year and yep. something as opposed to giving a whole bunch of money to an and, underperforming. And, and under, just under, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bloomberg giving all the money to Johns Hopkins. How could I have forgotten? Yep. How could I have forgotten? Uh, $1.8 billion yep. to Johns Hopkins University. Which while a fantastic university, it educates a really small fraction of people, and the vast majority of them are not coming from, you know, if we think about one of the big kind of social benefits of education is the upward economic mobility for, you know, for people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, this is not achieving that goal. So you could support taxing the large endowments, giving such that you're supporting, um, you know, HBCUs that, you know, are are struggling, but provide a critical mission in this landscape of higher ed. Absolutely. The other thing that I really hate about this is that it was a naked political action because uh-huh. this is this is unprecedented in nonprofits like education you know universities don't think about them in this for the purposes of this tax don't think about them as universities just think about them as a nonprofit sector that was singled out there are other nonprofits that have very large endowments um, so think about you know if if you were told that um, there is there is a nonprofit sector that some of which have very large endowments that um, that we're going to selectively start taxing them and no one else. That doesn't sound like just a good way to go about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's frankly, this is I think this is equivalent to um, saying we're going to start taxing the endowments of churches. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you know, under President Obama, he had said, "I'm going to start taxing the you know the endowments of churches." That would not have flown. Nor that should, would have been a problem. That would have been a huge problem, <laughs> as it should have been. Mm-hmm. I would have been completely. Uh, well, I, when I'm a, a religious person, but even if I weren't, like there, that is not. That's not cool. Sorry, too, for, too, sorry for swearing. Oh, I, I, I swore right. earlier as well. No, uh, um, I'm, I, I, I'm Catholic, so we're fine. Oh, with, okay, we're, okay. We're, we're fine with All swearing. All right, cool, cool. Um, <laughs> so there's... There's some pushback happening too, right? I mean, I think they're trying to get it fixed or repealed, uh, people, you know, on a bipartisan yes. basis too, right? Yes, there is a push for that. Now... We'll see, you know, until there's actually language, because when this thing was first proposed, um, it changed a million times before it was actually enacted. So, you know, we'll see what winds up happening. Speaking of upstate, I think it was Tom Reed 
who is from up that yeah, area, I think up that's that way, right. that uh, championed this one. Yeah, I think that's right. Why do you reckon that this is the pro- nonprofit sector that's get that's that they're going after with this? Well, um, you know, demographically, the more educated you are uh, right now, the um, it, we've had a demographic switch. It used to be that um, you know the the very highly educated, on average, voted Republican. And you know that was education correlating with income. You know, there's it's more complicated than I'm making it out. But but on average, you know, Republicans used to do much better among um, uh, higher educated. Mm-hmm. Um, since 2016 and Trump, there's been a complete switch uh, in that. And the uh, higher educated areas, especially in the um, election a few weeks ago, went overwhelmingly Democrat. And mm-hmm. so this is when I said it was nakedly political. It's it's taxing your enemy. And that is, you know, all throughout history, taxing your enemies, you know, historically is always seen as a very bad thing. Treat everyone the same. If if the government actually thinks that endowments, you know, in general and nonprofits are, are a problem, there's a cohesive argument for that, then tax nonprofit endowments. Um, don't just single out education. Tax all of them. Tax tax the charitable organizations. Tax the Red Cross. Tax the uh, the Catholic Church. Tax all of them. If you don't think that they're a problem, and what your actual problem with is, um, you know, on average, higher education tends to be, um, you know, more liberal. Well. That's that's then that's taxing your enemies, and mm-hmm. not, you don't have a coherent economic argument behind that. It's just taxing your enemies, and that's not cool. One of the the primary reasons that I want to talk to you again is based on the fact that of the bulk of the research that 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 you do, and that and that I'm very very interested to learn more about is um, earnings based on what you study in college, mm-hmm. and you know the the sort of labor economic effects of the decisions that you make in college. Is that basically summarize sort of yep. your primary area of interest? Yep, absolutely. So I gave a presentation the other day at a high school, Croton Harmon High School in Westchester County, New York, mm-hmm. where, you know, the topic was basically it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter where you go, what's like what you learn and what you do there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, obviously, we're talking about economics. And so when we talk about the value of what you do in college, we're talking about earnings yep. uh, and you know, economic output. Obviously, there are many more different kinds of much more difficult to measure outcomes yep. that uh, you could uh, uh, say would ascribe value to a given uh, major that do not have anything to do with money. But for the purposes of your research, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. So, um, and I'll, I'll, you know, mention that disclaimer up front. There are uh, there are many other benefits to um, to the individual for having more education um, and to society of having a more educated, you know, workforce and populace in general. So um, it's, uh, but as you said, many of those are more difficult to measure. And so um, I stick more to the things that I can measure reliably, which is labor market returns. But with the caveat that, you know, uh, there are other benefits too. So, um <laughs> In terms of um, a you know the returns to different college majors, 
they're huge. That um, there's maybe a uh, two million dollar difference in lifetime earnings from you know from the top earning majors to the bottom earning majors. So I actually used the 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 graph that that you have right on your website mm-hmm. that shows you know the chart and the the percentile range by major. Yep. Which shows high school at the very bottom. Yep. Right above that, theology. Yep. And then at the top, I think it's chemical engineering. Yep. And then everything else in between. Yep. Um, so one, thank you for using. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I like to try to use data where I can to help people understand these things, and and I'm I'm glad to 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 be able to have yours to to rely on. Yeah, it's um, I, because this is one of the obviously is one of the other arguments too. Is it's like you know what the heck's the point of college? You don't really need college, you know. Yep. And I've that was right after I think right before that slide, I hearkened back to our previous conversation about the Excelsior Scholarship, where you mentioned that you, you stand to make a million dollars more over the course of your lifetime if you go to college than yep. if you don't. Yep. That's fairly compelling. Yes. Um, now, one thing that I want to, um, you know, kind of temper with, with, with that is, you know, there's, uh, and that's, that's true on average, but, you know, there's also a notion of risk. And I think I'll, this is one thing that I'm trying to talk a little bit more in, um, and I can actually send you um, a, a recent report I did for uh, um, uh, the Think Tank Third Way that kind of tried to get at this. Cool. Um, but um, this notion that just because we, you know, on average, College is a great decision, and it is. It is arguably the 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 best and safest financial decision that you can make. That doesn't mean that it's not without risk. Mm-hmm. Um, that you are delaying income because you're you're delaying entry into the labor force. You are spending money on getting a college education. Um, eat and you know not everyone makes the exact same amount. Um, some people are going to make more than the average. Some people are going to make less than the average. Mm-hmm. Some people are going to make a lot less than the average, uh, even within a given major. And so um, so there is this notion of risk. And, you know, we can think about, say, the probability that college is, you know, is going to pay off. Think mm-hmm. about it in terms of that mm-hmm. rather than in terms of, you know, on average, you're going to get a million dollars. The other thing is, well, um, just because you make a million dollars over the course of your lifetime with a college degree, you're pushing some of that, you know, more into later years. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that we care, you know, if you give me the choice between having one dollar now or one dollar 10 years from now, you always will want one dollar today. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of notion of discounting of future value that has to also be taken into account when you're talking about the decision of whether to go to college. And as a high school student, I mean, uh, to the extent that they're involved in the decision, it's a really sophisticated thing to think through. And I would argue probably zero percent of them are really thinking through it on this level of sophistication. Oh, absolutely. Even I mean, e- even the most financially sophisticated, even, you know, college grad, you know, is, uh, it's really difficult to think through this stuff. And that's why I think it's important to one, communicate that, you know, this is on average, a really, really good and safe investment, but it's not guaranteed to pay off. Um, it probably will, but it's not guaranteed. If you go to a reasonably priced in-state, you know, public school, especially say the public flagship school, it's going to pay off like ninety-eight 
mm-hmm. percent of the time. If you are going to a very high-priced private school, uh, particularly, say, non-selective, sometimes for-profit private schools, maybe a lower graduation rate, lower graduation rate, less you know, less resources. It's still, you know, maybe it's still likely to pay off, but maybe only with a 55% chance. Um, and 45% of the time, maybe you're, um, you know, you're going to wind up being worse off when mm-hmm. you consider how much you paid, how much, how much time you spent outside of the labor force. Okay. Now, it's true that major matters a lot, and this getting to your point um, from before, if, if you force me to choose... What matters more, major or where you go? Major matters more. Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely does. I'm conducting research right now um, that at least among public schools, um, if you take really, really selective public schools versus really, really unselective public schools. Okay, let me, let me put it this way. Would you rather be an engineering major at um, the state flagship or, you know, when art history major. I hate picking on art history because a lot of people do. It's a yeah. fine major. It just, it's what a lot of people use. Is, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, 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 say theology. We got the, we got the, you know, the evidence. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, some low earning major. Would I rather be the engineer at the least, at the least selective school mm-hmm. or um, the low earning major at the most selective school? Yeah. What I'm saying is I'd rather be the engineer at the least selective school. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, the major matters more. Right. Um, it also, also what you do in school, it matters. And this is a lot harder to quantify, but what you do within the major. Are you going to office hours and getting, um, you know, going to all of the cultural events the school has and when they bring in speakers and when they, right. you know, talking with the professor, you know, to, to really deeply understand the material mm-hmm. and then getting a great letter of recommendation for, you know, mm-hmm. like you can, you can have two people who get the exact same degree, you know, and so they're, you know, maybe even their transcript looks the same, but they had completely different college experiences in terms of what they did, you know, their experiences in in, in and outside the classroom. Right. And, you know, that stuff matters too. Mm-hmm. Um, connections matter a lot in the mm-hmm. labor market and internships mm-hmm. and uh, and letters of recommendation. And so... But know, this is one of the, you know, this is, one, this is an important point to highlight too that's something that I try to explain to students all the time too is that um, we tend to focus a lot on getting in. Yep. And what getting into that place will get us when we get out. Yep. And not so much on what we're going to do during that four years between yep. getting in and getting yep. out. And that matters a lot. And too. that's seemingly everything. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's right. That um, it's not just enough to, we to do get a in. really good job of teaching kids what they need to do to apply to college yeah. and do their best to, to apply to college. I don't know that we do much of anything at all to say, how are you going to get the most out of it once you get there? I, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and you know, I don't know what the right answer for that is. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of outside my, uh, yeah. you know, my. That's my, okay. Yeah, my. I was just musing. Yeah, no, no, but no, but I think it's really <laughs> important, and I think it's I think it's important that people people are working on that, and you know, one. How do we do it from, um, you know, from a practical perspective? Mm-hmm. How can professors? How can advisors? How can we help 
um, um, you know, make the, make the experience better for students, but also too, how do we communicate that to students mm-hmm. and and get that message to them? So, one of the things that you know I found I find really compelling to think about and to present to families is the the just the the sheer kind of vastness of the economic change that is on the horizon Mm -hmm. that uh there is so little that we can really know about the shape of things to come yep and yet uh i mean and then there's a lot that we do know to the extent that we're perfectly happy to take all of their tuition money their rooms their fees their room and board etc to train them for a degree that a lot of people would tell you right now will definitely be obsolete yeah we just don't know quite how soon it'll show up but it's definitely going to go away yeah um and so you know i'm curious to know sort of from your position here you know in the academy how does this work does the economy dictate to the academy what they need to do to train people for the economy or does the economy work with what it's got coming out of colleges. What, tell me, talk to me a little bit about that interplay. So it's a really, really important and deep question. Um, and you know, I would say there's a little bit of both. I think the academy historically is, you know, I, I say this as a labor economist who you know studies some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the academy is a little slow to react to changes in in what the labor force, you know, what the the skills that they want, Mm -hmm. that they do react. There's just a lag. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and so I think that, I think that universities can and really need to get a little bit better at a kind of responding to, you know, to the market incentives Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, this is, this is an area where things like tenure can probably hurt because then it's a lot easier to, for instance, if you know you are not responsible for the you know the job outcomes of your students, you have tenure, you have a job regardless, then you don't have to care immediately quite as much about you know about mm-hmm. things. Now, I can say within my own university that uh, that's, that's really the only one I can speak to with a you know a great degree of certainty. But this is something that we talk about, and I'm in a college of liberal arts, so that while econ is one of the highest earning majors, there's you know a number of majors in there that are that are lower on that uh, on that list, but they still they're talking about it, and they there are college wide initiatives that are are aimed at. All right. How do we improve things? How, this is something that is is talked about, and that concrete steps are are you know being taken in terms of um, for for every major part. You know, trying to you know find partnerships with um, with you know local businesses. One of the things is you know Temple has a really big advantage being in Philadelphia. That um, there are a lot of jobs in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and so. There's a lot of room for um, for any major to you know to try to make partnerships with you know the the local community and get get students into internships that you know I, I mentioned internships before. If you force me to ask you know to to name you know one absolutely critical um, component of getting a job and getting a good job out of college, 
I think internships, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And and so the more that it, we in the College of Liberal Arts are, you know, have a, a, a big focus on kind of expanding those programs. Now, the problem is it's hard to do. That's, you know, pr- professors are promoted. They're given tenure and they're promoted based on their ability to do to do research, mm-hmm. which often involves no interaction with people, not being social at all. These things that are completely different from partnering with a business mm-hmm. and setting up an internship opportunity for students. Right. And so this is, I think, one of the reasons that there's that lag that I was mentioning, that, um, you know, this isn't what we were trained to do. We were trained, we got PhDs, a PhD is a research degree. This is what we were trained to do. And then um, then it's, okay, now teach and get these these kids jobs. And so that takes time to figure out how to do that. And not everyone who is a good researcher is going to be good at, at that aspect of things. Fortunately, I'm in an econ department, which is by virtue of the field, is kind of closer connected to the economy because obviously, and it's a little easier to find internships in economics than it is in some fields. Yeah, um, that you know, quantitative skills right now are very much in demand, mm-hmm. so we can kind of sell that. Well, that's part of the question I have is that you know when you when you look at, I mean, uh, one of the points that I was making in this presentation to these high school families is there are some majors that make obvious sense you you can see very clear career path with yep. them yep. you know in the instance of chemical engineering like i think i can see a pretty lucrative career path yep. right there and why that is that way yep. you can sort of make the same argument though in in a less direct way with majors that you would never think would 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 pay off you know yep. and i used the example of a woman that i interviewed for the podcast named um, Genevieve Bell who's an anthropologist who works for Intel and, you know, a pretty STEMI organization. And what she does is basically figure out how do the humans work with the robots? Yep. You know what I mean? And, and and so my question, I guess, here is how much do we know or can we kind of ascribe a weight to certain majors gauging their portability in the economy? Yeah. So that, you know, a chemical engineer is not going to make a very good X, yeah, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah. Uh, but an anthropologist could work all over the place, you know, that kind of thing. What yeah. do we know about that? Yeah, so this is another, you know, really important kind of dimension of the, you know, returns to majors question mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, how much of it is, um, one, you know, what's the different portability of different majors? Two, how much of the, you know, the fact that um, chemical engineers make more how much of it is because they're chemical engineers and how much of it is because they are the type of person who wants to be a chemical engineer. Yeah. Um, and in other words, what is the causal effect of being a chemical engineer on earnings? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be different from what is the is it's likely to be different from how much more do chemical engineers make than the average you know college grad mm-hmm. um, like you said like let's say let's say we took someone who was there on the margin between deciding whether to go to chemical engineering or whether to be a poli sci major or something like that then imagine having you know two parallel universes where we can see 
you know, see them when they were a chemical engineer and see them when they were a, a poli-sci major. What's the average difference across those? That's what we want to be able to see. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we see in practice because many people were not on that margin. Um, many people chose, you know, the, the type of person who chooses chemical engineering, they're probably really, really good at math and really enjoyed that kind of stuff. And if they weren't chemical engineering, they you know, they probably would have done some other quantitative subject and there was no chance that they were ever going to be a, um, an English major. So some of the difference in majors is definitely due to that type of, you know, uh, what an economist might call bias. Mm-hmm. That if there's a $2 million spread across across majors, um, kind of just, just looking at the averages, maybe it's only something like, you know, 1.4 million if we control for these differences in ability and preferences and other mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. there's still big differences, but we've also taken away about a third of, you know, the, the you know, variation in outcomes, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. I think there's still a lot more work to be done in, you know, on, on, uh, um, on this type of question. But in a... Um, there have been a number of people who studied this this question. I'm one of them, um, and you know others have studied it in completely different ways than I've studied it. So we've kind of looked at it from um, you know different. Who are some of these folks? Which where should, who, whose work should we be looking at? Yeah, so um, there's a guy named Mike Lovenheim who's at uh, Cornell, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's amazing in many many ways and you know now he's he's a super busy guy but it, uh, he's the department chair of the econ department well, right he's got now. a website yeah you can check uh, in yes yeah. Yeah. but he's also if you ever if you ever get him on the phone or for an interview he's also the most entertaining guy in the world um, that's so, saying a lot yeah no and, right. I mean I'm not I'm not saying just for an economist he is all right yeah he is entertaining for anybody sweet um but so think about this experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, think about there being a a cutoff for a GPA in order to get into, say, a business school. Mm-hmm. So let's say that um, there's a there's a business school where um, you um, you have to have a 3.0 GPA in order to be admitted into the business school. Mm-hmm. And if you if you hit a 2.99 sorry, you can't be a business major. So this creates kind of a natural experiment where you can compare people with a 3.0 versus a 2.99 who, you know, so in other words... Life forced them into a different path. Exactly. Um, And this is one of the ways that some people have have studied the, you know, returns to different majors is finding these really important cutoffs that basically create what we call a natural experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then following people people long term and seeing well because basically these are the same people there's no you know there's um you know there's no difference in ability or you know uh, between a 3.0 and a Mm 2.99 but because of this random threshold that someone just kind of arbitrarily put then some people get treated very differently than others um and this is one way that economists try to get at causal effects rather than just correlations. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know this has found in general big differences across majors. And there, then there have been other ways of getting at this question um, that 
know, have also found big differences across majors. So I think there is something there. There is something there that there are some majors that are teaching skills that are just more valuable to the labor market mm-hmm. than than other majors. Um, now, predicting what's going to happen in the future, boy, it's hard to do because you know you never know what technology is going to do and what it's going to to make obsolete. Um, you know, something something like say accounting, which is a quantitative major and is you know usually a you know a pretty good safe safe returning major. You know, I would really worry about you know an accounting major going forward. Um, you know, maybe in the you know if this were the 1960s, I'd say no, accounting, fantastic degree, you're probably good. But you know, things that can be automated, and we've seen big shrinkage in you know the kind of the the you know accounting. Uh, Labor force, you know, as personal computers and tax prep software mm-hmm. has, you know, become, you know, come into existence. I think that's only likely to continue. And so, this is exactly the example that I used. Oh, really? From You're kidding. Will robots take my job.com. There you go. Uh, in my presentation, I shared this with families. Uh, it has the risk of, of this job becoming lost to robots at 94%. And then it says, you are doomed. Okay, so we did not plan this. I did no. not know that. <laughs> yeah, but seriously, I mean, it's it's it's, it's pretty amazing. And yeah. then you look at, um, and then and then the next slide, I, I, I talk about uh, educational guidance school and vocational counselors, <laughs> and the risk is, is only 1%. Yeah. So I'm safe, and I, I think probably economics professors are safe too. So I think, you know, so there's, um, this argues for, you know, somewhat of the, like, um, the liberal arts, and I'm meaning this in a broad way, not mm-hmm. like, um, uh, um, not like you should Humanities. Go, yeah, you should right. go be a you know a history major. When I'm saying when I say a liberal arts education, I'm meaning a broad yep. education. Yes, the uh, true definition of the of the term. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and I think this somewhat argues for that as you know. So one quantitative skills are important, and mm-hmm. they that that is. Absolutely true. It cannot be cannot be um, you know, overstated how important quantitative skills are. But pure basic quantitative skills can be done by a computer. What what you really need are you know the what goes along with quantitative skills, interpreting you know things that you know critical thinking. Okay, how do I take the result of you know these data and turn it into something that is valuable. Mm-hmm. That's something that can't really be done by a computer. Those critical thinking skills and so kind of, you know, taking, you know, being able to understand and create the the, the you know, data and, you know, and, and, and numbers is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You mm-hmm. need that, you know, for the future, you want to also be able to how do I interpret it? How do I communicate it? That writing skills, communication skills are really, really important as well. Mm-hmm. It will shock you to learn that um, you know many math econ people, and I say that because I have both a math and an econ degree, so I'm making fun of myself here, that many math econ type people- Catholics are good at the self-deprecation. Yeah, um, you know, aren't great at, at communicating with people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, where, and, and, and there's evidence on this that the, um, the higher paying jobs tend to be the ones that combine quantitative skills with 
critical thinking skills and communication skills. Mm -hmm. And so um, you ideally want to be, you know, getting a strong foundation in all of those. Right. And, you know, that's now again, nothing like I kind of said before, nothing is, is without risk. There's mm -hmm. risk inherent in absolutely everything that you do. But if you're taking, you know, the you know the 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 most sure path, I think it's it's you know getting you know finding majors like that, um, and that you enjoy mm -hmm. like this. And this mm -hmm. is the other thing in, in in all of this is that well, one, it's not just all about money. Mm -hmm. If it were all about money. I wouldn't be in this job, you know, that I, I had higher offers coming out of graduate school from the private sector. But I love teaching. I love my research. I couldn't do this in, in, in the private sector. And mm -hmm. so I made a conscious choice that, you know, there are other things that I value other than just my pure salary. And mm -hmm. so I took a little bit lower salary to come into academia. Mm -hmm. That's a conscious choice. And that's, you know, people should make that choice. Mm -hmm. People should not be in income maximizing. Well, it seems as if that, and this is what I think my very first guest, Bill DeRigiewicz, who wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. Uh, he was a professor at Yale. And so he talks about, you know, people that go to places like that and saying that, you know, in spite of, you know, I mean, sort of no matter what they major in, you know, it could be classics and art history and whatever, that they, that the fact that they're coming out of an elite so-called institution like that, uh, they're in greater numbers using that credential to maximize their wealth yep. uh, more and more. Yep. Because they can. Yep. No, I think that's right. Okay. Well, I have a couple more questions. Sure. Let's say there's a knock at that door. Mike Bloomberg himself is standing there. He's hired a team of people yep. to bring in wheelbarrows of cash containing his second $1.8 billion gift. And do it's I to, get to do Doug I get one Weber's of those uh, research activities. Uh -huh. Seriously, if you had all the resources in the world, what would you like to spend Ooh. your time, money, and energy on figuring out for us? Boy, that's a good question. Um, so quite honestly, and I say this as someone who is, you know, all of my research agenda is in higher education. That's what I study. That's what I know the most about. But if there's one area that I think is, you know, of greater importance, I think it's K-12 education. Well, obviously, I'm a huge advocate for higher ed, but where I think the marginal dollar would have you know the biggest impact, I think it's it's um, in particular reducing inequality among um, schools. Is, so you're saying you'd, you'd take that money and just give it to K twelve education? Because I, I was meaning, I was meaning like I, more. I, would I you? Try, I try to figure out. You know, I, I think there are better ways to target it than just yeah. get just straight up giving it to them. Yeah, but but this is the area that deserves our attention, our time, I, I, everything I, we can throw at it. I I, I, I think how to so. Do it as best we can. And I think it's it. Don't we know how to do it? We just don't want to. Well, there's some of that. Um, don't we know that? People will become better people if they're mixed with a bunch of other different kinds of people yes. and that they all have the same amount of resources yes. available to them over yes. the course of their K-12 education. Yes, and that's why I said reducing inequality in, um, in K-12 funding. When you look, uh, especially across states, when you look at the, um, you know, the, the amount of resources that 
I'm not going to name states to avoid shaming anybody, but you know, from you're from Florida, you can name that. Yeah, um, no shame there. In in certain states that there are certain states that are that really underfund, um, you know, education as a whole, and in particular, um, um, school districts with you know lower income, high minority students, and. Frankly, there's there's a lot of evidence out there that says that you can trace racial wage gaps back to the um, that a, a causal you know a, a cause of a lot of the racial wage gap is low quality um, the lower quality public schools that minorities are more likely to attend. Right. So you know we hit other problems like we fix other problems in our society if we fix that one mm-hmm. um and you know it's uh, and in the process we enfranchise a bunch of people who probably wouldn't vote for republicans i didn't say that okay um, uh well but, you could though you're tenured you can say whatever the hell you want um i i, I don't i'm not talking at any thing about that i'm just saying <laughs> economically speaking economically speaking like this it if you're talking about making a huge impact, I'd rather do it there. Yeah, um, I, I I think that's that's where it would have such long-lasting effects. Um, well, Michael Bloomberg is a huge fan of this podcast, so I'm sure he'll hear you. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, yeah. Emails. yeah, yeah. Um, so, last question, backing up to you know our previous topic, uh, talking about majors and you know the sort of paradox of choice that families have, uh-huh. not just where to go to college, but what to do within those experiences. I did the tour here at Temple. Yep. Um, would you believe this is the best place on planet Earth? I mean, given, you know, what the the, the, the presentation that I received this morning, uh-huh. you know, they're all fantastic. They all have more clubs and organizations you've ever heard of. Of course. They've, they, they, they all have uh, however many million volumes in the library. Yep. People don't even know what a volume is. Is that a book? Is that a series? People don't know. But they all say there's millions of them. You know, every single school ha- looks fantastic. Yep. Um, and then to take into account also what we said before about how sophisticated anybody needs to be to think all the way through, uh, you know, to graduation and life and everything yep. in making this decision. It's no wonder it, it feels paralyzing. Sure. So if you're a family that wants to maybe do a little bit more sophisticated research on this than to just sort of trust the U.S. News and World Report rankings, right. where would you point them or, or where what kinds of things would you be would you be focusing on and paying attention to? So really, really good question. The U.S. news rankings. I'm not a huge fan of them. Um, you know, and to a large degree, there are, I believe, six senators. Uh, that I, just I came tweeted out about this to, yesterday. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, so I, yeah, they just came out and said that they they didn't say, "Hey, U.S. news, you know, basically kill yourself." They said, "Hey, U.S. news, change your methodology to account more for uh, the impact that you have on the social uh, mobility, right? On social mobility, which yep. they did." This year, they changed that 5% of yeah. their methodology accounted for uh, success for of, of, of Pell Grant recipient students against other non-Pell recipients at their schools. But yeah, yeah. it's a sliver, but it's not nothing. I mean, yeah, it's, no, no. It, 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 I, it's still, a, it's so, a very welcome change. I was so you're not thrilled. a fan. And, I, I'm not a yeah. fan on average because, mm-hmm. so for a couple reasons. One, because it 
it to a large degree is a ranking of you know institutional resources. Like if you if you take the you know the um, endowment ranking and then uh, like it's another thing we were talking. I mean, we were talking about endowments. It's a giant piece of the of the pie. Exactly. That like you know the twenty percent is institutional resources. Exactly. So it it just you know it, a lot of it is just saying okay, are you a wealthy school and ten percent and, and and are your are your students coming from well off backgrounds? Well, that's the other thing is that the biggest portion the biggest piece of pie is the graduation and retention rates. Yeah. And when you think about all of the different things that impact yep. graduation and retention rates having nothing to do with yeah. the institutional and, and, environment and SAT but where scores people are coming and, from. Right. All of those things yeah. really just just you look at the top ten schools, you say, well, they're just really good at having rich people go there. Exactly. And so for all those reasons, I'm not a big fan of, of specifically the US news rankings. Um the if you are looking for a ranking that I think is um, is you know, kind of geared at a little bit, you know, something a little bit more informative, um, um, uh, Washington Monthly right. does uh, does uh, what I think is a good ranking. And uh, Robert Kelchin, I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, Robert. This was your co-author on the uh, – Yes. Right. Yep. And he's in New Jersey, is that right? He at, is, uh, yes, he's at uh, Seton Hall. Seton Hall, right. Um, and – also, just an awesome guy. Um, he's going up for tenure right now, but he, fingers they're, crossed. They're, they're, no luck necessary. He's he's got mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. He's uh, he 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 will get it. So the Washington Monthly ranking, I think, measures the impact that the the, the school's graduates sort of have on society in a in a sort of service and a giving back capacity, right? Yes, and they and they have more of the social mobility type stuff in there, and they're no ranking is is. Is perfect by any means, and it's it's always going to kind of reflect the the biases of whoever is is you know de- designing. Well, what's the criteria? But you know, if if I'm looking for you know who's actually kind of doing good things, you know, that's that's where I'm looking. Now, getting back to your question, if I'm looking at you know for you know for my student uh, for my my child. What what's going to be the best you know best place for them? Um, the college scorecard from the Department of Education I think has a ton of resources. And, in spite of Secretary DeVos getting in there and mucking it up, uh, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it has been it, uh, it is it has been unfortunately it's still made, better than nothing. Yes, it's it's way better than nothing. It, it was made worse over the last few months because they took they took some useful information out of like what the national average is. Yes, that's right. So you uh, can see a number, but you have no idea if that's good or bad. That's right, and right. so it requires a lot more searching on the yeah. you know the part of the family to you know when you remove that context, but. Still, if you are comparing, like if you, you know, if if you are comparing, you have a set of schools and you can at least compare them, even if you can't get the national average comparison, um, you know, that, um, you know, figuring out, okay, what are the, you know, the, the job outcomes here, the, you know, the graduation rates, the, um, you know, what does the student body look like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the loan outcomes? How mm-hmm. many? You know, what is the, what are the financial aid outcomes? Mm-hmm. The, there's there's a lot of information in there that I think is really really useful. One of the biggest things that whenever I tell people like kind of the you know general like rules of thumb advice, people think that price that you know price equals quality, mm-hmm. and in higher ed it simply does not. Mm-hmm. 
uh, if you take the um, the set of schools that people actually get into. So this is this is not comparing you know people who go to Harvard versus um, you know people who go to um, you know a really crappy school like Florida State. <laughs> um, so <laughs> says the Gator. Um, I. Whatever. I, yeah. Wherever I went. <laughs> um, so bottom of the barrel Florida State grad, we're, we're not talking about that comparison. We're right. talking about you get into a public school and then the comparable private schools that you could get into. Mm-hmm. The returns are basically the same, that like the the likelihood of getting a job and getting a good job and your earnings and everything, they're basically the same once you control for the rank of school that you go to. In other words, if you're actually talking about going to, you know, Florida State versus Harvard, then you go to Harvard. But the person who just can barely get into Florida State can't get into Harvard. That's yeah. totally fine. Most people can't get into right. Harvard. I didn't get into Har- I didn't even apply to Harvard. <laughs> um, but if you compare the type of person who, you know, is on average, a good fit for for Florida State versus the you know the typical private schools that are of that same rank, you should go to Florida State mm-hmm. um, because and uh, that's probably the first time I've ever said that. You sh- someone should go to Florida it's on State. On tape too. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> um, but um, um, and you know I'm I'm making these jokes more now because we just uh, whooped up on Florida State uh, uh, a couple weeks ago. You and everybody so, else, man. Yeah, I say, I mean, hey, hey, I'm just happy that's we fine. did. Yeah. I'm just happy we did this year. Um, <laughs> My Trojans lost to oh, both Notre Dame and UCLA I'm sorry. this year, which is wonderful. Anyways. Uh, but, but, you know, if you're outside of, say, like the top 25 schools mm-hmm. where you're talking about that really, really elite, you know, right tail of the distribution, mm-hmm. in general – Go to the in-state public school. You're, yeah, it's going to be way cheaper, and on average, you get the same outcomes. Right. If you have the opportunity to go to one of those, you know, top ten super elite schools, then maybe those are worth it. But what I'm saying is, you know, the private schools outside of that range. On, it, this is a general rule of thumb. Of course, there are exceptions. You know, maybe there are, you know, some states have really good flagships. Some states, you know, have not as good of flagships. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's something to take into account if you are in a, a state that, you know, um, again, I don't want to shame any state, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that does not have, you know, a particularly high-ranked flagship. Yeah. That's something to take into account. Um, if there's a particular major that you want that isn't offered at, you know, your public school, of course, that's another thing to take into account. But on average, that's a, you know, to a, um, you know, a general approximation saying go to the in-state public school is going to be a better, yeah. it's going to be good advice. Well, um, I I really just think that the U.S. News and World Report is, is the, the reason that we have uh all manner of anguish uh yeah. over this process i think yeah. it's terrible i yes. think if you look at every single one of the things that they yep. uh pour into their calculation you can poke holes in it yes um and, they're, and they're, 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 everyone tries to game them so well that's the point right i mean that you know one percent of of their calculation is you know percent of full-time faculty on campus you know yeah. and if you wanted all of a sudden to see more full-time faculty on certain campuses uh, raise that to two percent yeah that's you right. know what i mean and so yeah it's insane but I think, Doug, this 
is what I value so much about being able to talk to you and be able to put this out um, because this is the important work is to understand the truth of all this stuff, to, in, to understand the reality uh, to the extent that we can understand it economically and otherwise. And um, thanks for doing the work that you're doing. And, and, and thanks for repeating everything that you said to me uh, those months ago when we tried this the first time. Happy to. All right, man. Okay, you guys got all that? Whew. Eternally grateful to Professor Doug Weber for his time and expertise and willingness to record an interview all over again. And man, let me just say that uh, if I were a student interested in economics, I'd be thinking about Temple because he could be one of my teachers. And it's a point we made more than a few times in the conversation, that the experiences you have in college are pretty much the main thing that matters in terms of what comes after college and having good relationships with teachers being a key part of that. And let me just say that not every professor is really into building relationships with their students. I think you heard a little bit about that in the talk as well. So kids, parents, spend some time looking at specific academic departments as a component of your college search and understand who those student-oriented teachers are in there. How do you know who those teachers are? Ask current students. Ask them when you're visiting campus uh, what classes they're taking, what they really love, and who the legendary teachers are in their department. They know all of these names, and I guarantee you that they will smile when saying the names of these teachers. Uh, Look, a lot of kids can't always visit the campuses that they apply to, so pick up the phone. There's a strong chance a student employee in the admissions office will pick it up on the other end and just go ahead and ask them questions. That's their whole job. Basically do whatever you can to fact check what the suits in the admissions offices are telling you against the lived experiences of the students there. It'll make all the difference in the world, and I think you'll get a a fantastic hit of what the place is like. If you ask the students at random, ask them, hey, when was the last time you met with a professor? And ask that a few times. And if more than a few students answer that question with, well, I've you know, I met with one this week or I'm on my way to an appointment right now with somebody like that, then uh, I think you get a sense that this is a place where it's easy to get to know your teachers. Okay, huge thanks again to Doug Weber for being a good sport and for doing this good work to help us cut through all the noise here. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Stay in touch with me at CrushPod on Twitter, CrushPod at gmail.com. Subscribe and rate this show on iTunes and other podcasting platforms and share it around. Share it with those who you think might be into this stuff. New episodes coming up soon. Uh, Please check back in the uh, coming weeks for good talks with good people. Thanks again, everybody. Spread love.